Welcome to Saga Craft. Myths, fairy tales, legends, stories comfort us, inspire us, and heal us. Please join us as we share stories, both old and new. More than anything, we are open to the story and its unfolding. At times, it may be one story told by one person. At times, it's the same story told through three different voices. In the end, we go where the story takes us, and we invite you to follow. I'm C, a writer, artist, and storyteller. I'm Betsy, a medium and teacher of mystery traditions. I'm Gabriella, an artist and practitioner of folk magic. We We are are magical fairy godmothers godmothers in training. Tonight, we are talking about the mysterious and wonderful Myrrh women. Well, first, I want to dedicate this to all of the spirits of water. And my particular story is about the Finn folk mermaids. When the sea is high and rolling, the wind is lashing, and boats are in danger of foundering or crashing onto the rocks. And this weather sprang out of nowhere. I'm the one who gets the blame. When your man goes to sea fishing or in the past raiding and never comes home again, I'm the one who gets the blame. When your man comes home but loses interest in you or the pub and goes out each night to the shore, coming home at last with unfulfilled longing, I'm the one who gets the blame. And it could be me who's to blame or my sisters, for that's the life of a mermaid. Where I live, the sea is wild and treacherous and the rocky cliffs and stony islands are numerous. It's a place of rare magic, strong currents and very hardy people. This wildness suits me for I'm not your typical mermaid. And for that, I'm profoundly grateful. I'm one of the Finn folk, and my home is in the sea near the Orkney and Shetland Islands of Northern Scotland. Finn folk is the undersea region where my kind live. We've lived here since time began, and we are protectors of our islands and of those who honor us. Finn folk, I feel, were among those who received a generous portion of gifts from the creator. We don't all look like ice blonde Nordic mermaids because we travel the world's waterways and have brought back to Finfolkaheim the blood of many different cultures. Like other mermaids, I do have the siren voice. And when I was a lot younger, it was fun to sit on rocks and sing to the passing boats and to see who or how many men I could mesmerize with my voice. It's not only my voice that you need to fear, it's the images that I put into your mind. I can do it by singing and I can do it in dreams once I've seen you. You will find it very hard to escape me if that is what I choose. In the older days, it was a little easier for us. The most that we had to fear were sharks or other ocean going predators. Now, with mechanized ships and water pollution, we have other dangers to face. We're not bitter. We are survivors. We do that by adapting. Never think of us as having human motivation or understanding, because we don't. I suspect it's hard for you to think outside of that particular box. This may always be one of your downfalls. I'm not intending to create your downfall. I'm just being me. Meeting me may be the most fortunate day that a man will experience in his life, or it can be the worst thing that ever happened to him. It depends on several things, some of which are not entirely in my control. One of those things is how people behave when they meet me. As creatures of magic and the sea, Finn folk are ruled by the moon and the tides. Equally, we are ruled by the sun and the alchemy that the sun produces in water. In the north, we're ruled by the northern lights, the solar flares. And consider the currents, 
well, you get the idea. There's a lot of lore about mermaids and not all of it is true. Some of it's true for some mermaids and not for others. And because of this, people do very strange things when we let them see us. I'm not talking about stuffing wax in your ears to prevent hearing us sing, because that's a very sensible precaution. I'm talking about assuming that we would even want to be with you and are willing to drag you out of your boats to get you. Another is that we are like leprechauns and grant your every wish if only you can catch us. Imagine what it's like to be someone who half the people flee from and the other half try to catch you. It's why seeing a mermaid is a lot less likely than ever before. Unlike other mermaids, I'm not confined to my mermaid form. We finfolk are shapeshifters. Our natural form is the mermaid or merman, but we can lose our tails, gain legs, spend time on the shore passing for human. We don't have to lose our immortality. We don't have to bargain for a soul or any such thing as do the Southern mermaids. We aren't under any geish either, meaning if some human saw me transform, it would be my carelessness, not an opportunity to become enslaved. We are not selkies. Now, if you're a selkie, you're a different kind of shapeshifter. One form is a seal and the other is a human. If a man takes the selkie woman's shed seal coat, he owns her. As long as he has it, she can't change back from human form to that of a seal. We're not vulnerable in that way. Undiscriminating human men don't quite get the distinction, which becomes a danger for my kind. Not enslavement on a domestic level, but of literally losing a part of us. One of my kind took a human lover on a nearby island. She blessed him with fair winds and truly large netfuls of fish. After all, a happy lover might be inspired to be devotional in his lovemaking. After a night of sexual bliss, unaware that he was awake, she started to leave his bed, thinking of slipping back into the sea and returning home. For us, even to think of that begins the transformation. Unbeknownst to her, he saw the return of her iridescent fins, which we have in more places than just on our tails. Attempting to detain her, he grabbed her back fin, trying to pull it off like a sulky coat. When that didn't work, he took his knife and sliced her fin off. Brandishing it in her horrified face, he declared that now she was his and couldn't leave. In a right rage then, she shifted into her mer voice and cursed his manhood and his livelihood and any, very unlikely at that point, descendants. Ripping her poor fin from his hand, she vanished in mist and high dudgeon, returning home ashamed and indignant. She's not the only one of us with missing fins. We see it and don't chide her for it, but it is a cautionary tale for us. The fact that it keeps happening is a mystery to us because we share information pertinent to our survival. We may have individual rivalries or grudges that play out in various ways, but we do look out for each other's well-being. It seems that in some humans' nature, that instead of sharing information, like don't cut off the fin of a fin folk or your life will be forever blighted, men do not always share their experience. In some instances, they even share in the pub that this is the way to handle a fin girl, ensuring that they will not be the only one to experience the catastrophic misfortune that came their way. This leads me back to what I was talking about earlier. Fin folk have the ability to choose to become fully human if we make that choice soon after we become adult. If we marry a human then, we can decide to give up the sea and have permanent legs. We don't experience physical pain from this, but we are giving up who and what we essentially are. Souls don't really come into it for us. We have a soul and we can take your soul. Marrying a human doesn't guarantee us getting a different kind of soul, just a different kind of life. 
We can take a human lover into the sea with us. If they have the right bloodlines, they can be shifted to adapt to sea life. If they don't have the right bloodlines, they die. And we live with them in their spirit form, loving them until the spirit form eventually fades. Then we let Ron, goddess of the ocean, have them. If we like this type of relationship, we bring another man under the sea. Those husbands don't and can't regret it. In earlier times, there was more magic in the world. Different types of otherworldly folk like us existed alongside humanity. Fae and elves, dwarves and gnomes, tree and rock and other kinds of weather and water people. We could interbreed between species then, and it's thought that this is how our shape-shifting originated for us in the North. There was a time on the planet when the seas were different, the gravity was different, humans and myrrh were attracted to the power of the land in the North. Extraordinary beings came from other realms and initiated shifts in consciousness and in physical possibilities. Who they were is part of our secret lore. Like other finfolk before me, I want to know more about these mysteries. And so rather than beguiling men, I spend my time looking in the places under sea that were above water when the mysterious great circles were made. I find treasure under sea along the way which funds my above ground life when I choose it but it's what's under the sea that draws me. You will never see me unless the currents cause you to seek these same mysteries. Like all stories, this happened, is happening, and will happen as long as the story continues to be told. There is, was, and will be a young woman named Aeon. During the day, she works making useful things she does not enjoy and dreaming of snowboarding. She loves the cool waves of air rushing across her skin as she glides through the frosty world. It is the closest she comes to feeling at home. Every night, she writes in her journal telling the tales of her two lives, the one she wishes she didn't lead and the one she wishes she did. Every cold weekend, she heads up to the mountains to try to find work on Saturday so that she can pay to snowboard on Sunday. Early on the day of our story, Aeon jumps out of bed, brushes her teeth, and grabs her full backpack and nearly dances out, instinctively avoiding her apartment building's creepy hallway mirror on her way to her trusty bike, who she is named Sven. An hour into the four-hour journey, as she's panting up the steep hill, hail hitting her face like mini frozen torpedoes, the delivery truck drives by. Just as it passes, it hits an icy spot and begins to slide across the frozen ground. The panicked driver torques the wheel and the wagon spins out of control, twirling fast before gliding to a halt in an unfortunate snowberry bramble. Anne immediately shouts, call 911 at her phone and pedals desperately forward. You are not connected to the internet, the phone flatly replies as she throws her bike out of the way and runs to the accident. She collapses the vehicle's mirror so she can jump up on the short step on the driver's side and peers in the window, where she sees a man slumped in his seat. Terrified, she looks around for a large rock to break the window before reaching down and opening the unlocked door. His knee pops out. The rest of him is held in place by a seatbelt. She clears her throat. <clears throat> Hello? She tries in her most casual voice, as if she just happened upon him walking. She tries a few more times with varying intonations. Hello? Hello? She doesn't want to touch him. It seems wrong. He is hapless and unconscious by the side of the road. She looks around for any other travelers, but her only companion is the opaque gray fog, and its only interest is in spitting slush at her. After fanning him for a moment, she works up her courage and reaches out one hand tentatively. She pokes him in the arm. Nothing. Stealing herself, she quickly grabs his hand and shakes it erratically, withdrawing just as swiftly. Its limpness deeply disturbs her, so she knocks hard on the shell of the cab. His eyes pop open and he gasps awake, startling her into jumping backwards. He laughs and rubs his head. His features light up as she sighs in relief. 
Are you all right? She asks. Fine, he replies, looking about the dim landscape. I'm a spontaneous napper. Her brows knit together. When things get stressful, he goes on, like when I spin my car off the road, I tend to pass out. It's a life skill I'm very proud of. He smiles. She frowns. Is that your bike? She nods. Glad you're okay, she suddenly says, realizing she's talking to a strange man on the highway in the middle of nowhere. Thank you for your help, he adds, sitting up as she turns to walk away. One good turn deserves another. Is there anything I can do for you? She hesitates. Well, yes, she answers, turning back. I need to make some money today to ski tomorrow. Let's put your bike in the back, he replies, bowing as if in a royal court. I will generously reward your act of valor with dinner, a lift pass, a ticket home, and a private room. Madam, if you would be so kind as to seal our bargain with a kiss. That is very kind, your highness, Anne responds with a self-proactive snicker to keep it light. <laughs> but uh, methinks thine offer is a test, a failed test, if a person such as myself mounts a traveling courtier's carriage. Mine personage, however, would be honored to reunite with your highness in a public post hence to collect the reward. She is neither foolish nor into historical fiction. And I will apply the kiss to this stone person, she adds, picking up a rock and smooching it. The bargain is sealed, he announces with a wink, the Blue Lagoon at eight. She gives him a curtsy and heads back to daydreaming of snowboarding as she huffs and puffs the rest of the way up the long, cold hill. When she first started biking, she hated the feeling of sweating in icy, cold rain and hail, but now she loves it. It builds her expectations of the hopeful, exhilarating feeling she gets gliding down the steep, frosty hills and the rainbow reflections that light up her world when the sun hits the frozen water. As her joy mounts, she considers how lucky she is to have earned all she really needs for the weekend, but an amorphous doubt niggles somewhere deep within her. Anne arrives in town around noon and goes directly to Nixie's nursery, where the owner pays her to care for the plants while she goes through old boxes in the back. At the end of the day, Anne is rewarded with a boxed dinner and a lift pass. Where's the Blue Lagoon? Aeon asks. The only Blue Lagoon I know of is a film, the owner replies, then starts slightly and goes into the back, returning to offer a cloth-wrapped gift. What is it? Aeon asks. A mirror. It has done well by me, but that is my story, and this is yours. Thank you, Anne says, taking it, but unhappy about the burden of regifting it in the future. She points it away as she tucks it into her back pocket. Anne goes from person to person through town, asking about the Blue Lagoon. No luck. With the sun going down and nowhere to stay, she enters the dodgy tavern on the dark forest's edge. As soon as she opens the door, the 12 men in the room all turn to look at her. It makes her skin crawl. She smiles falsely and closes the door again. But the door reopens and one of the men comes out. Hi, dearie, he says with a strange lilt in his voice. Come on in and I'll buy you a pint. No, thank you, Aeon says, backing away and turning toward her bike. But another man, this one large and sweaty, rounds the building and blocks her way. Come on in, he says in a way that is not a question. Anne's heart begins to race as she looks about for anything that will help her get past him. Instead, a third man appears. This one's on me, he says with a sneer, not to her, but to the other men. Just then, a woman walks out of the bar. Leave the girl alone, she calls authoritatively to the men who head back inside. We'll have some tea and get you sorted, she says, guiding Anne to the back. Once inside, they move to a small table stuffed into a room piled high with stools and boxes. But no sooner have they sat down than the men appear again, surrounding Anne in every side. Terrified, she jumps up, and the mirror falls from her back pocket to the floor, where she catches a distant glimpse of the sea, its waves lapping almost over the edge of the ornate frame. One of the men reaches out, but she backs away, only to be grabbed by another. She swivels and jerks away, falling first onto, and then through, the mirror, grasping it as she plummets down, 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 through cool waves of water rushing across her skin as she glides through the frosty world. This is even better than snowboarding, she notes as she drifts towards the ocean floor. Air, she suddenly thinks, flailing about and wishing she'd taken swimming lessons. 
She twists around and accidentally punches the most beautiful mermaid she has ever seen. All right, the only mermaid she has ever seen. She is thrilled when the mermaid takes her hand, but instead of heading up toward the surface, as she hopes, the now questionable fish person drags her down towards the depths. Aeon notes that she is about to die, and maybe that's just as well since she could never adequately convey this in her journal. She is dragged through a group of merpeople to a matriarch who takes Aeon's face in her hands and leans in as if to kiss her. Aeon, who's always been somewhat bicurious, goes with it since clearly her time is limited. But rather than kissing, the woman parts Aeon's lips and blows water deeply into her lungs. Aeon bucks as gills open on the sides of her neck. The merpeople are gesturing frantically as the mounting pain in her legs begins to crescendo. A couple mermaids with concerned expressions wrap her in seaweed fabric and everyone yells some form of take off your pants and looks away. She tears them away as her legs begin to merge into a glistening tail. She instinctively pulls the seaweed blanket tightly around herself and blushes. That first step is a doozy, the mermatriarch says, her voice ebbing through Aeon as much as through the water between them. You're late. Aeon spins around to see the stranger from the road behind her. She stares a moment, then remembers, you owe me dinner, a lift pass, a trip home, and a private room for the night. I had Nixie give you dinner in the past, he replies. Welcome home, this way to your room. My story is about the love between a mermaid or a savanna, as we call her in Poland, and the river, the river and her people. Staszek was a kind and quiet young man. He was also very large. At the age of 16, he was well over six feet, broad-shouldered, strong and steady, but because of his gentle demeanor and affinity for daydreaming, he was often ignored or worse, laughed at. His father, a dairy farmer, would send Staszek to watch over the cows as they fed at the pasture, and the boy was well-suited for this task. He didn't mind the animals for company, and he enjoyed the open fields where they grazed. He liked to lay on the grass and listen to the birds and the gentle breeze as it moved through the leaves. He would often walk back to the village late in the evening after a long day at the field. His favorite path was at the edge of the forest by the Viswa River. During his walk, he sometimes heard the most beautiful singing coming from the water, otherworldly, really. The singing filled him with joy and sorrow and a longing he did not fully understand but always he felt sweetly comforted by the sound. He will tell his granny about the songs at the river's edge. He didn't dare tell anybody else for they would certainly make fun of him. But the old woman listened intently. I thought they were just stories, she said. But if you hear her, they must be true. The Serena really does live in the Visla River, just like my granny said. Stasheczku, you mustn't tell anybody about this. Let's keep this a secret just between us. Don't worry, Babja, I won't tell a soul. Even if I did, nobody would believe me. Dear boy, better not say a word in case somebody does believe you, and that's what I'm afraid of. That everybody has as pure of a heart as you, and men have grown greedy and eager to ignore the sacred in exchange for their own gain. Stashuk promised to keep quiet because Granny was always right about such things. Later that summer, Stashek and everybody else from the village attended a wedding of the baker's daughter. It was a jolly and lively event and all guests were in great spirits. Even the fishermen, always the first to make jokes at Stashek's expense, were unusually friendly that eve. Full of ale and melancholy, they shared tales about the river and all their fishing adventures as young men. It was me who caught that massive eel at Nadev. It was so big it barely fit in the boat, gloated Mateusz, the younger of the two men. Bah, don't you know it's not polite to brag? Besides, it was me that spotted the water beast, not you, yelled Shimon. I whistled my magic song to the river and summoned the eel to show itself, the older man recalled. And you, Mateusz, were too afraid to sing along with me for fear of the vodnik, worried that he would hear us and come up and drown you, the drunk listener chuckled. Not at all, Mateusz defended himself. I don't believe in the Vodnik, and even if I did, I would not be afraid. Vodnik, magic whistles. Next thing you will say is that you heard the Serena sing at the river's edge, Mateusz snickered. Stashek's eyes lit up. 
he jumped in excitedly. She does sing at the river's edge. I heard her just last month, exactly a month ago during a full moon, just like this one. The crowd grew quiet. You, Stashek, the cowkeeper, heard the Serena sing on a full moon not far from here, asked Shimon, suddenly growing more serious. Stashek, remembering his granny's advice of keeping his story quiet, regretted his words right away. Well, he stammered, I don't know, maybe it was the wind I heard. And after a long day at the pasture, it sounded like singing. Or maybe it was a young woman humming nearby and the sound carried her song to the water. Or maybe it was one of your cows mooing at you, expressing her love for you in the night, yelled one of the listeners, nudging Stashek so hard the lad spilled his drink. The group roared in laughter. And for once, Stashek didn't mind the teasing or the laughter and was grateful that nobody would believe a story or his mentioning of the Serena. He looked into his beer and tried to ignore Shimon's inquisitive stare. Surely this would be all forgotten by morning, he thought to himself, finished his beer and headed home along with the rest of the party. Sleep would be most welcome after such a festive night and it would make people forget these tales of magic under the full moon. Stashek was awakened by loud banging at the barn door, which was where he slept for that night. Startled and half asleep, he stumbled towards the voices and a commotion outside. He opened the door and found Mateusz and Shimon panting and nervous, staring at him wildly. You were right, Stashek. The Serena really does sing at the river's edge, Shimon exclaimed. Quickly, lad, quickly, let us in. Stashek moved out of the way so the men could come in. To his astonishment, they carried something very large and wet into the barn and laid it in the darkest corner of the space. It was so dark he could barely see, but when his eyes focused to his surprise and terror, he found himself looking at the Serena. He couldn't believe it. The two fishermen had caught her and brought her here, to the barn. He was speechless. He was hoping that he was still dreaming, but the panting fisherman, gasping for air and exhaustion, made this moment terribly real. What has he done by telling this story, he thought. What have they done capturing the Serena and bringing her here? Stashek, you must watch her for the night. We are too tired and need rest. It was quite a hassle to catch her an even bigger one to carry her through the woods and put wax in your ears or she will bewitch you with her strange songs. It's very important that you keep your eyes on her all night. Tomorrow morning, we are going to take her to the prince. He will be the first prince to have a singing Serena in court. We will be famous, and so will you, Stashek, so you must keep her hidden. But this doesn't seem right. She belongs in the river, in the moonlight, not in the bar, not, in, not among men, Stashek blurted out panically, finding his voice again. Oh, stop your lamenting, boy. She will be happy at court, and surely the prince will reward us with silver for such a rare treasure. Seeing Stashek's face grow pale, Shimon threatened, you will do what we say, or we will never forgive you. You will be the village fool forever, and that's nothing compared to the beating we will give you. Stashek nodded, intimidated by the older man. He felt that he had no choice in this matter, and so they left him to keep watching till dawn, left him alone with the Serena in the barn. Stashek's heart pounded loudly in his chest. He was sure she could hear it, but he dared not look at her or in her direction. He breathed deeply, slowly trying to calm himself down, and then she spoke and he could understand her perfectly. Release me, Stashek, please release me. Her voice like trembling glass echoing all around. Slowly, he let his eyes drift towards her, taking in her beauty and the terror of the situation. She was bound with rope, her strong tail restricted. Her arms were tied too closely against her chest, which was covered by luscious long locks, which seemed to shimmer with an iridescent glow and her eyes like jewels piercing into his when his gaze reached her face, a face most beautiful, with eyes so full of sorrow he had to look away. I am sorry, I'm so very sorry, this is all my fault. I shouldn't have said anything about hearing your songs, he whispered and had to stop in an attempt to suppress tears from rolling down his face. It's not too late, you can still help me. I can sense that you are pure of heart, Stashek, please, she said softly. Shimon says we will take you to court, to the prince. He will buy you all kinds of jewels and you will be happy there. It will be even better than the river, Stashek tried to convince her, even though he didn't believe any of this himself. 
I will never be happy at court and I will not sing. I can only sing when I'm free, when I'm at the river, she replied sadly. I'm sorry, I made a promise to Shimon and Mateusz. They will never forgive me. They will certainly give me a good beating, which I don't really care about, but mostly it took two of them to bring you here barely. I won't be managed on my own. It's impossible. I will help you. I have the power to double or even triple your strength. All you have to do is untie me. Stasha couldn't listen anymore. Even though his heart was breaking, he had to keep his promise. He turned around, put wax in his ears and committed to waiting until dawn, until the men's return. But his commitment was only of the mind, not of the heart. And because his heart was pure and kind, he could not ignore the Serena's sorrow, nor her quiet pleas muffled by the wax. After what seemed like eternity, with the night beginning to slightly fade and shade, he got up, crouched over the tide beauty. He untied the ropes that bind her tail and arms. Liberated, she moved with a great force, stretching her body across the floor. You must pick me up over your shoulder quickly, she said, and breathed a strong wind into Stashtak's ear, which entered his lungs, arms, and belly, and strengthened his will. He picked her up, and even though he bent under her weight, he could carry her much easier than he thought would be possible. He walked out of the barn, looking around to make sure they were not seen, and started walking as fast as possible towards the forest to the river's edge. The night was truly beginning to pale. Stashak regretted not acting quick or fearing that the men would wake any moment. The Serena, feeling his anxiousness, breathed more wind into his ear, which gave him more strength and speed and he was now able to run. The forest edge so close, so visible, and then they heard shouting and yelling behind them. Stop, stop, Stashek, you fool, what are you doing? Mateusz was chasing after them, and not far behind was Shimon. Idiot boy, you will be punished. You will regret this, mark my words. Shimon's loud voice booming through the trees. Stashek's eyes widened in fright. Courage, Stashechku, courage. The Serena whispered with her hand on the boy's heart. Stasha kept running. Nothing mattered now, not the beating he would get, not the cruel words, only the river. That was all that mattered and how fast he could reach her shore. The men were closing in, driven by anger and greed, but they were no match for Stasha's speed and mission. He got to the river first and released the Serena into the water. She hung on to his neck for a quick moment kissed him once on the cheek. Stashek the brave, I will not forget you, she said, and dove under the water with a powerful splash, spraying him with cold morning river water. He fell to his knees. Shimon, Mateusz, and a few other people who heard the commotion and yelling stood now at the river's edge, bewildered by what they saw. The Serena, now far away in the currents beyond reach, rose from the water and said, I loved you, beautiful shore of the Viswa River. I loved you, kind, hardworking people with pure hearts. And that was your song. I was your magic, and I brought magic to your days. Why did you think of imprisoning me in a castle to sing for a prince? My songs are not for castles, and my songs cannot be bound. I cannot sing in captivity. I would rather go deeply into the river, deep below, and only sing to you through the hum of her waves. And many years from now, when hard times come, that your grandchildren can't even imagine, when battles come, when your spirits might be broken, I will return with shield and sword, and I will sing you songs of hope, songs of victory, and songs of freedom. And with those words, she disappeared beneath the waves. Many years passed since that day, and people are still talking about it. Stasha grew up to be a fine man, honest, generous, hardworking. He married a sweet young woman from another village nearby who loved to daydream along with him. She had wheat-colored hair and a smile as bright as the sun. They had many children and grandchildren and lived a long, happy life. But that is another story. They were beautiful. Thank you both. And yours also. Thank you both. I love the Serena. Me too. I loved all the myrrh beings and the Serenas, all the water beings. Thank you. This was very fun.
And I love the creation of the mermaid also, or the, do you think of it, see, as the creation of a mermaid or her finding her true self? I thought it was a reclamation. Yeah. (laughs) I loved both yours. So I loved yours, Betsy, and I loved the idea of how sovereign she was and how clear and it's not kind, but just articulate, like clear and responsive. It was compassionate, but not sappy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in who she was in the world. And I really appreciated that. And I loved yours, Gabriella. And I was totally in love with her. And I want things to go well for her. <laughs> like, I was, was like, it's wonderful. You want to come back? I want to protect her and make sure she's okay in the future. It's very beautiful. Thank you. She is most certainly okay. And she is the defender of the Viswa River and the people. Um, so she is certainly okay. She just cannot be bound. I absolutely loved both of these stories. They were so very different and yet so otherworldly. Betsy's was more obvious in the otherworldliness. There was no hiding of it. It was there from the beginning to end, but it was current. It was at present time, which I loved because it brings the magic into current time where, where we are and it's approachable and see yours was I really didn't know what was going to happen until the very end when it all becomes clear and it, what, what I loved is that it wasn't even clear to her what was happening she had absolutely no idea of her true self just a longing and I liked I mean, in the way that the mermaid whose story I was bringing forward um, was describing it, it was, she really gave me a glimpse of how in humankind, there are people of mixed parentage. And so as um, C's story began to evolve, it was like, oh, this is that. (laughs) This is... um, whomever it was that was, you know, the merman, was a merman that was driving the truck? Right. (laughs) Exactly. And for the Finn folk person, it was very clear that her people could have lives upon the shore too, both for the females and the males. That felt like a, a beautiful exploration of the earth side or the land side of what can happen for the mer. Betsy, what was it like for you to spend a week or however long this story was coming in, did you feel connected to this, the Finmer, the, I'm not saying her name correctly. Um, they're called the Finn folk. And yeah, I did really like her. Um, I liked her and I liked her voice. And I liked, as you were saying, see, I liked her clarity about who she was. And also that sense of mystery, I could really feel that. And I didn't find her sentimental at all. I was kind of anticipating that I would have a sense of her love of the water or, you know, seeing something sort of flowery or beautiful or um, luminous about that. And I felt as though it was that the waters and the lands that cupped those waters, that held those waters, were such a part of her that it wasn't even something to be remarked upon by her in some way, that she was so much a part of that. And that was really interesting to me to feel. I really enjoyed that. And then it was really a surprise that she was such a seeker of the mysteries herself. And... I liked that sense of her exploring those places that archaeologists would love to be able to get to, but can't really so easily do. So I enjoyed that. It does seem like she would have the perfect avenue for deep dive exploration of, of all the worlds and special VIP access. Yeah. And I guess the sense of the lore, too, of knowing where to look for whatever it was that she was seeking also because of those stories that were held, I think. And for you, did you find, what did you find as you spent your week with uh, Warsaw, Serena? Longing and gratitude, mostly gratitude. 
really understanding that for me, it's always a matter of connecting to the land wherever I am. And it's always seems most appropriate for me to connect to the land and water that I'm surrounded by and knowing that this was the connection from which I came from, even though I'm not there, it definitely tugged at my heartstrings. It was a really, it was a really moving story for me, which I've known for many years, but I, it was different rewriting it in English. And I have to say, I had to read that one, the, the Serena's words several times so I could get it without crying because I thought, I can't read it and cry here, you know, but it really was very emotional for me understanding the history and the war and you know when she really came up in stories during world war ii um so it's a it's a story of victory for me and victory of the natural world and victory and sovereignty of the people that i think is so important it sounded as though she acted as the sibyl or the prophetess also yeah. giving warning to people several generations out of what they could be anticipating. Absolutely. If only people have the ears to hear that, yeah. I certainly had really enjoyed this time with, with the Serena and the mermaids and the water beings and yeah, really, really great time with them. It was very beautiful. Thank you. And see, did you feel like you it sounded like it had a very good connection with your being. <laughs> how was that for you? How did she, how did she come to you? I felt very dictated to. In fact, at several points, I wanted to go a different direction and I was totally like, no, you are listening to me. Although on what Betsy was saying too, she totally could go in and out of the water later, but that just wasn't part of the story, but she would have gone on for at least another story or two had I had the time and effort for that. Maybe in the future we will hear the next part of her story. I found it very interesting that she had, without knowing her true self, such a love of water in the form of snow and how important that was that she made such an effort to be able to do something that allowed her to have that feeling, which I can only imagine. I've never snowboarded, but I have skied and that it's like a feeling of flying. And I think of her now as flying in the water in her own way too. Yeah, it's quite notable to me that she loved the feeling that would be the feeling of water, but that she had never been to water and therefore looked for it in the mountain. Mm -hmm. Like how often do we run the wrong direction when we're looking for something that feels like home? Yeah. Or sniffing out whatever aspect of it that we can, which is within our, our view or our capacity to smell. So... And I, I really thought that she did know who she was because of the mirror. There seemed to be the mirror and her writing about the world she wished she lived in, which read as she has a double life and is living in a different reality or in a different dimension. I really thought she knew who she was and she was trying to keep from becoming that. She was hiding her identity. Yeah, I feel like that was hiding her identity from herself. <laughs> yeah. I like the use of the mirror too, or the appearance, not the use, because it sounds like the story was dictated to you. So it's a part of the story, but I love it as the threshold or the doorway that allowed her to enter into that world and be initiated into this deeper truth of who she is too. I'd love to know that older Mer woman more. Me too. Um, I got a little lecture on mermaids is not appropriate. It's diminutizing them. <laughs> oh, because of the maid? Right. Yes. They're merwomen and mermen. They are not maids. <laughs> is it from maiden? Like mermaiden? Right. I will respect that. <laughs> <laughs> There is a view of the maid as a, a woman who's not attached to a man, therefore not under the control of a man. Right. So maybe that form of mermaid is archaic, but more accurate. But 
maybe the more correct version now is the mer woman. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah, actually what they said. So I wrote it out and then I realized it wasn't part of the story. So it got deleted. But they had a whole conversation where they agreed on mer person. We're just mer people. Single is a mer person. <laughs> mer merfolk. Merfolk, yeah. Oh yeah, like fin folk. They have they came oh. to that based on having additional fins in other places, which Yeah, I was really upset at the fin amputation. <laughs> I was really not okay with it. Oh, somebody rescue. Not okay. I appreciate it for how bleak that part was because I feel like it really captured the magical killing of something sacred or just that that severance of you know and the taking of somebody's power so I thought it was yes horrific but I could really understand and see how a man could do that or any you know or anybody anybody that wants to sort of own another person and feels like the aspect of them that holds the most power is also the aspect that will take them away. So they get rid of the aspect with power. I thought that that seemed pretty true. I think too, up in the North, there's also the strong Selkie population, if you will, and so much lore about the Selkie and, and how people would get mixed up about what are the traits of a Selkie and what are the traits of a thin folk person. But it is, just like in your story, it is definitely about the capture of somebody for someone's personal gain and how, like in both stories, the Mer woman, the Serena and the Finfolk woman really chose to be out of reach of humankind and found that in that, that was where their safety was. And then the freedom to pursue their mysteries, whatever those might be. But I loved the, the way that the Serena gave also a teaching to the people for those who had the hearts to hear that teaching. And she really did love the people, right? She loved the people. It was never a question of that. But she knew when her time had come for that love to be changed because they would no longer be open to magic the way they were before. And I also love that she was the people's Merv, the, the people's Serena, not the court. So there is, there is a belief in Poland in terms of where the magic really is. And the magic is really with the people. So it's not a matter of money. It's a matter of connection to the land and relationship to the land. So even in that she's so clear about, I'm not singing for the prince I'm singing for you, I'm singing for the people, is a very sort of rural folk belief that they may not, these simple people may not have money, but they have the magic and they have the connection to these magical beings and protection. And they have the connection to the land because they live on the land. They don't live in the stone castle somewhere else. Yeah. I loved her attachment to the full moon as well. Yeah, she loved the full moon. And in Betsy's, I don't know, I might have already said it because I was thinking it so much, but I loved her serial relationship with the dead men. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was great. That was great. <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, I think that kind of worked for her. <laughs> Knowing that they will fade at the point that's, yeah, that's a relationship you can commit to. <laughs> I was curious about how they would fade, and I didn't know if that was a spirit thing or if the body would just slowly disintegrate over time, and she's playing with the body as it starts. <laughs> was, that clear? was she clear about that in, in her? I would say she was clear that it was... The body was long gone at that point in time and that they are there in spirit, but that, you know, over time and tide, that spirit just became more threadbare and 
and then it was time to give them to Ron, the, yeah. the, the collector of the drowned people, because essentially they, if they went into the ocean, they would have drowned at that point if they didn't have the right blood. So, yeah. And I'm, you know, in the, in those islands of Scotland, that was a Viking stronghold area. So those, I liked for myself, just kind of finding, oh yeah, there's the, it's Scotland, but there's also this very distinctly Norse quality. And um, sorry, what were you going to say, C? Oh, I just really liked also that some of them did have the right blood. So for yeah. some of them, no big deal. Okay. Now I'm a water being. <laughs> that does give one hope too, doesn't it? That you can, for those who like yours, is longing for a different life, there might just be that other life if all the events line up. And that was one thing I saw in your story was that everything came together in this particular moment for the magic to happen for her to go through and to be inducted into this transformation. It felt like as if the other world, the mirror world was watching across the, the same mirror at all the events and moving the tides to, to the reveal, to the capture. Pretty sure they were. Yeah, the snow, the sleet, the ice, all of it, all that water, making it all happen. Yeah. Well, that was really fun. Thank you both. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you both. And thanks to all these mer people, yeah. mer women, for sharing something of themselves and helping to know something about that mysterious world. Well, as I go through this week, I will be really looking at my relationship with water because I so love water and what that, what is bound in my life by water. I think one of the common threads that I see in the stories is the, the mer women really being themselves. And that I think is what I'm going to take into the week is what would that be like to just really be myself? And I feel as though by spending the week, I got a taste of that with the myrrh. And by hearing your stories, I got some additional insight into it. So that's what I will take into the week. I think I will take the power of water, the blessing of water, the healing of water, and the messages, the information that comes through it and how inevitably all rivers lead to that great big ocean. And it's so terrifying to think of, but that ocean holds everything. It's how we become part of ourselves in a whole new way through the information and through the healing and through the blessing of water. So I will, I will think of that throughout the week and I'll certainly think of it when I drink water. Yes, thank you to the Serena and to the Finn folk and to the Mer people and to you both and to Saga. Okay. Thank you all. And special thanks to the fantastic Zoe Magic for her phenomenal editing skills.